Second Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 11 through the end of the chapter. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all and those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of God. Before I invite Pastor David up for his message, I would just like to introduce a video that ICF has produced. I hope that it helps everyone get a little better understanding of who ICF is and what ICF is. Your sister is so mean to me. Really? Yeah. Is everybody mean to you? Everyone is mean to me. Why is everyone mean to you? I have no idea. I guess I'm just like a very. Do you feel vulnerable? See, this is good. This is what I'll use for like. Can you like smile and talk to not looking at me? Talk to Ethan. You're supposed to be talking to Sam. No, don't. Hi, I'm Jonathan, and I'm a freshman at Brandeis University. My name is Shelley Wong, and I am a senior at UC. How did you first learn about ICF? So, I, I think ICF is kind of elusive, but like, I didn't find it in like my college fair. But Connie, Connie Chen, we were dancing together, and I mentioned I was looking for a church. She's like, oh, you should definitely come to CBC and, you know, we'll Go, like, this Friday. Uh, well, it was actually Nathaniel Ting when I was a freshman at Club Fair, which is Olin's like first club event of the uh, fall semester. I was introduced to ICF by a family friend who went to churches in Austin, Texas. Um, first heard about ICF from Matt O'Leary. Um, he's a sophomore here, and I met him on campus. What was your first impression of ICF? Oh uh, boy, there were a lot of people, and they were all really, really friendly. Um, 
My first impression of ICF was riding awkwardly in a car ride with Victoria all the way to ICF. Then we became great friends afterwards, so that's great. My first impression of ICF was a group of very warm and very loving people. It was like I got a very strong sense of community and family of, of young students who just wanted to know each other and wanted to really know God's Word. I thought it was very Asian. <laughs> what is something funny that happened in your small group? <laughs> well, the first thing that I can think of is during one small group night out, our small group played this game, fishbowl, salad bowl, there's different names. But I just remember my, my small group counselor and leader I remember last year, Natalie would always tell us to share our highs and lows, and none of us could ever think of anything, or whatever we said was usually really stupid, but I really enjoyed um, our times that we shared. I remember we were sharing something about what is your like, spirit animals, and in our group, like, all of the Chinese people said pandas, and all of the Koreans said dogs. What are the four ICF goals? Uh, definitely trying to get more corporate prayer together. Sharing the gospel. Making new disciples. Uh, and to make faith decisions. How have you been challenged by ICF's goals this year? What have you done differently as a result? Um, for me, it's mostly been making faith decisions after retreat. And I recently started to share my faith. Although, like in an indirect way, by like writing the devotionals. Through ICF, I'm challenged to look at the conversations and relationships I have with other people more closely. They've all challenged me, but I would say the one that has challenged me especially is this idea of making faith-based decisions. So, before making a decision, praying and meditating upon it. Um, and considering why I will make a certain choice and wanting to do it for God to serve Him. So this year's ICF theme is to go and grow. How does that challenge you? Like in our small interactions with anyone, how we can kind of invite them to uh, be a little open about, you know, saying this is because, this is because of God. Like, um, what I did here was me. Uh, I think the hardest part about Grow and grow is trying to share with your friends because it's really intimidating and I'm still working on that. I mean every week in small group there's something that comes up and you know somebody will call me out on something in my life that I need to change. It has really taught me to challenge my own views, constantly challenge what I want to do with my life and because of that I think in part it has pushed me to really investigate what goes behind it, and it's partly a reason why I decided to um, graduate a year early. Good morning. So good morning, everyone. I hope, as Aaron said, uh, the video gave you a little bit, of, of, you know, of inside information of what goes on in ICF, what we're trying to do, who some of our students are. I feel personally very blessed to be working uh, with many gifted students that God has brought uh, to ICF. We, we just feel very privileged uh, to be working with 
uh, this type of fellowship and the type of gifted people that we have and many of whom you've seen, you know, just perform various aspects of the service today. Um, as we get into the message uh, for this morning, uh, let me start off by sharing that I love Chick-fil-A. Uh, I don't like, I actually don't like a lot of their food. Well, actually, the food doesn't like me because they cook most of their food in peanut oil, so I can't eat it. Um, but I love what they stand for as a company, as an organization. I ran across a story uh, some of you may have read about this Chick-fil-A franchise in Alabama. And it was just a little over a month ago that it was just freezing cold for Alabama. I'm sure it's nothing like it is here, but for the city uh, down in the south, it was freezing cold. And, and it was so cold that people would just be coming into the Chick-fil-A to try to warm themselves up a bit. And so it's mid-afternoon, and, and a man walks in by, by whom, whose all appearances, you know, you could tell was pretty much a homeless person. And the owner was preparing to leave for the day, uh, but as he was leaving, the two made eye contact. And as they made eye contact, the man, I guess, recognized that this was an employee of the, of the company, and maybe he didn't know he was the owner, but he, he stops and asks the owner, he says, um, is there some work that I could possibly do so I could get something to eat? And instead of escorting the man out of the restaurant, he actually takes the man in, has him sit down, and offers him a meal. And there could have been, you know, the end of the story, and it would have been a nice gesture, but it didn't stop there. Uh, as the man was waiting for his meal, the owner noticed that the, the man kept rubbing his hands together. You know, he kept rubbing his hands together like this. And he said, the owner said, you know, there's this look about someone's hands that's been out in the cold. He said, you can just tell that they got this cold hand look upon them. And so the owner asked the man, he said, do you have a pair of gloves? And when the man replied no, without hesitation, the owner grabbed his gloves and just gave it to the man. And this whole incident lasted just about a few minutes, but in the age of smartphones, it didn't go unnoticed. A woman who was there just watched this whole thing unfold, snapped a picture of it with her phone, and posted it on Facebook. She was quite moved and, and said that she actually used this incident to be a teaching moment for her son, who was also present at the time. And as people saw the Facebook, you know, her Facebook post, it kind of started going viral and news news outlets got wind of the story. And so a news reporter, you know, went to interview the Chick-fil-A owner, and he asked the owner, he said, why is Chick-fil-A so generous? By the way, this the same franchise, the same store gave out hundreds of free Chick-fil-A sandwiches just a year earlier when, uh, I guess in January, yeah, just about a year earlier, there was this freak blizzard, and there was hundreds of trapped motorists. So they would go out and give hundreds of free sandwiches away to these motorists who were stuck and couldn't go anywhere. And so the owner, who, who actually was unaware at the time that you know this incident with this homeless man was being recorded, shared that, well, it was because of the Truett family, the owners of Chick-fil-A, and the principles Chick-fil-A was established on that was the reason why Chick-fil-A was so generous, or he was so generous. And he shared what those principles are. He says, the principles are to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us and to have a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. And I heard that and I'm like, man, I love this mission statement. I love the fact that it is ingrained in their employees and that these employees are committed to living this out. And if you ask 
one of our ICFers what our mission statement is. I would say that if the person's been coming at least a year or more, I'm, I'm fairly confident, I have a great deal of confidence that they would at least be able to repeat three words, go and grow, go and grow. Maybe they won't, wouldn't be able to tell you anything else, but they would tell you go and grow. And they would be correct because we see it as our mission in ICF that it's our responsibility to go and tell, tell others the good news of Jesus Christ and help them grow in their relationship with God. This is a mission statement I work with the leaders with, who were the leaders a few years ago. We came up with this mission statement, and I think it's a great mission statement because it reflects the priority we should all have, and it has a strong biblical basis for support. And I want to use our text for this morning as one out of you know many texts I could use to show why this is so. But this morning we'll focus on 2 Corinthians 5. So hopefully you still have your Bibles open to 2 Corinthians 5. And I want to start by looking at the last few verses of our passage. Starting with verse 18. You heard Aaron read it, but let me read it again. Paul writes, All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So in just these three verses, we see the word reconciled mentioned five times. So obviously, you know, this is an important piece of this passage. And reconciliation assumes that something is broken. From these verses, we can see that what's being referred to is a broken relationship with God because of the wrongs we've committed, because of things that we've done to rebel against God, our relationship with God was broken. But through Christ and his his death on the cross, it says in verse 18 that we can be reconciled to God. And since Paul is one who's been reconciled, he writes that he sees it as his task or mission as being this ministry of reconciliation. An ambassador, as referenced in verse 20, is a person who represents a king or a ruler from a country in a sense to a foreign or alien country to represent that king or ruler. And so for Paul, he understood that being an ambassador meant that he represented not just the king, but the king of kings, and was to represent him on earth to those who were in in an alien culture, namely those who didn't know Christ. And his message was that to those who were formerly enemies of God by nature, that they could be reconciled to God and restored in their relationship with him. This was Paul's mission. That was Paul's message. And what was true of Paul should be true of us as well. I could have started looking at our text from the beginning of our passage since Paul makes a similar statement right up front. At the end of verse 11, he says, So we try to persuade men. Same thing, right? part of this ministry of reconciliation. But I didn't want to start there because some of you might read this and think, well, that was true of Paul, and maybe you know that's true of Paul and his companions, but that wasn't necessarily true for us. Maybe you wouldn't see it as your obligation to try to persuade men. But from, from these last few verses that we looked at, it's hard to argue that this could only be Paul's or a limited few's responsibility. He writes in verse 17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
So if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you are this new creation. And then once again, in verse 18, he says, All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Who's us? Those who are the new creation. And then he continues, And he gave us, the same us, the new creation, the ministry of reconciliation. So it's not just those who choose to be vocational missionaries or those who feel they have the gift of evangelism or those who are extroverts that are supposed to go out and witness. It's all of our responsibility. And it's not just a responsibility, but I would argue that it should be our priority. For these were, in fact, Jesus' last instructions to his disciples before he left earth. I'm sure many of you are familiar with Jesus' last words. In the Gospel of Matthew, right? Go and make disciples. In the, in the book of Mark, go into all the world and preach the good news. In Acts, you will be my witnesses. It seems that these first followers understood more clearly what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus than we do now. For there is no way, I don't think in those days, that you could accept Christ into your heart without accepting Christ's missional purposes. Throughout the New Testament, you know, we just see example after example of how they lived out this ministry of reconciliation. But it seems nowadays there's almost no expectation that this requirement be met and prioritized to be a disciple. You know, there's a story of um, this owner of a travel agency who had to leave town for an out-of-town engagement. And while he was away, he instructed his employees to service and sell as many travel packages as they could while he was away. After he had left, the employees thought it would be good to kind of huddle together and have a team meeting and plan what they were going to do while the owner was away. So as they met, they noticed that you know much of the office was cluttered and in disarray, that there was all these files that need to be filed properly. And so they decided they should work on that. Another employee thought it would be good and, and actually very helpful if they, you know, reread the Sabre reservation manual to see if there was like more shortcuts or things that they could take when making reservations to make their programming more efficient. And so when, the, you know, the owner returned, the employees eagerly greeted him and boasted how well, you know, the office looked, how clean it was, how organized it was. They boasted about all these shortcuts they found through rereading the operations manual. And the owner, after hearing their glowing reports, asked only two questions. How many clients did you service? And how many travel packages did you sell? And obviously the answer was that they had not serviced any clients and they didn't sell any travel packages. And though well-intentioned, the staff got sidetracked doing secondary, secondary tasks rather than focusing on the task that was given to them by their owner. And I think this is often true for the church nowadays. I mean, how many churches are so focused on making sure with those within their four walls are well-fed that they fail to reach anyone on the outside? And how many members of these churches feel it's just their responsibility to come to church, to learn more about the instruction manual, to give and to just serve those within the church that... They never reach anyone outside of the church. You know, Paul understood clearly what his priority should be and lived it out. And at ICF, we seek to uphold this priority, so we go. We go. And what about you? How do you live out this ministry 
of reconciliation which God has tasked you with. And you know, as Paul sought to fulfill his mission, we see from our passages he was motivated by two things. The first is found in verse 11. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. So the first motivation is fear. Fear of the Lord. But what does it mean to fear the Lord? Because the verse starts out, since then, well, obviously it's referring to something that was written in the past. And it makes the most sense to refer this verse back to verse 10. Because in verse 10, Paul writes, For we we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for us, the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And then Paul writes in verse 11, Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. And so on. So in fearing the Lord, Paul's referencing God's judgment. He recognizes that one day all men will stand before God and will have to face judgment. And so with the knowledge of this reality, he does all he can to make sure that people don't face the negative consequences of being apart from Christ. And you know, fear can produce two results. The first one is paralysis. Paralysis. My home, like thousands of others in Boston, suffered from several areas of leakage recently due to ice dams on our roof, you know. And the side of our house running along our driveway, there's just a huge wall of a huge ice dam and these huge icicles that were hanging from our house. And I would often look up because I had to, you know, walk um, from the car to uh, walk along the driveway from my car to my house to get in. And as I was walking to and from my car, I would look up and look at these huge ice, icicles, and I would think, man, if you know one of them fell, I would be seriously injured if it landed on me. Or it would, you know, it could basically impale me. And then our neighbor next door, he had a roof rake, and though it wasn't high enough to scrape the snow off our roof, he was able to um, reach the icicles. So he was kind enough to come over one day and knock off the icicles uh, with the roof rake. I wasn't home at the time when he did this, but I was told later that he did this. And so when I saw him next time, you know, he thanked me and he shared, oh yeah, man, you know, he said, it's, wick- it's wicked dangerous. Sorry, I don't have the Boston accent. I can't even fake a Boston accent, sorry. But he's like, yeah, it's like wicked dangerous, man. It's wicked dangerous. And he was telling me how like sometimes when, as you knock down the icicles, the icicles will slide down the pole of the rake and come straight at your face. So he's like, wow, it's wicked dangerous. Yeah, I don't want to ever do that again. And so, but, you know, there were ice dams and, you know, that needed to be addressed. You know, he and I suffered from this paralysis. You know, he would never want to do this again. And, you know, even if I had a ladder long enough, I would never want to climb up on the roof to try to do that because it was just so high up. You know, I would be terrified of going up on that roof to try to knock down the ice and, and, and you know, address the ice dams. So we had this paralysis that, that this fear that prevented us from doing anything. But there's a second type of fear that produces action. And, and you know, quite simply, you know, those of you who were in school or, or you've been in school, you know, you know, an easy example of this is, you know, you fear failing an exam. And if you, and since you fear failing an exam, you'll pull an all-nighter if you need to, if you think it's going to help you pass it, right? And so when it comes to evangelism, we often experience the first fear. We fear not knowing what to say. We fear our friends are going to reject us. So we're paralyzed, and we won't do it. 
But Paul shows us, though, that it's the fear that produces the second result that should override the one that produces the first result. He realizes that those he's trying to reach are hellbound and will face the wrath of God if they are not reconciled back to God. So should our fear of being tongue-tied or facing rejection override the fact that our friends and family members will have to face the judgment seat of Christ? will need to come stand in front of God without Jesus in their life. And I was in communication with a recent ICF alum who, who shared about a friend of hers who, who recently died in a tragic accident. And in the back of my mind, I wanted to say that I had met this girl before. I, I think this, this girl actually came to ICF once or twice. And at the time, you know, I, don't, I don't think she was a believer. Maybe she was a seeker. And I, and I, I don't even know what her status was more recently. But it just reminded me of the urgency that we have as our mission to share the gospel with others because you never know what's going to happen in life. Life can be very fleeting at times. And regarding judgment, Paul also recognizes he himself has to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So he wants to be found as one faithful, carrying out the task that God had entrusted to him. And this fear of not being found faithful produced action and caused him to share the gospel with as many people as he could. And then the second motivation that we find in this passage is found in verse 14 where Paul writes, For Christ's love compels us, for we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. So the second motivating factor is love, Christ's love. And this factor has two aspects as well. The first aspect is that Christ's love is enacting. It's enacting. And what that means is that it changes our convictions. In view of impending judgment, Christ, moved by his love, considered the needs of others more important than his own comfort and willingly was the one who died, as it says in verse 14, to save all who would believe in him. And as Paul understood this, his convictions changed such that he was willing to put others' needs for reconciliation before his own desire for comfort, and even willingly suffered hardship and persecution to be Christ's ambassadors so that some may be saved. So the first aspect, once again, is that Christ's love is enacting. It changes our convictions. And then the second aspect of love is that it is empowering. It is empowering. For those who are followers of Christ, Paul recognized that Christ's death brought about the death of all, as it is written, such that he doesn't have to do the work under his own power, but he is now, as 1 Corinthians 5.17 says, this new creation who has the power of this resurrected Christ working inside of him. Paul confirms this elsewhere in Colossians, where he writes in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 to 29, we proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. And then he adds to this, and I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. So Paul understands that he is not left to his own devices to try to evangelize, but it is Christ who empowers him. Christ who is the one that does the work through him. And so as we think about our call to tell those outside the church, our motivation doesn't have to be guilt. 
It doesn't have to be obligation. We see from this passage it should be a fear, a healthy fear that produces action as we understand the destiny of those without Christ and a love that motivates and empowers us to be bold in our witness. And then a final encouragement I want us to see from this passage is Paul's assurance. And this assurance is that God has reconciled. God has reconciled. Turning to the last couple of verses again in verse 19, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And then in verse 20, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And understand in verse 20, when Paul writes, be reconciled to God, to God the verb reconciled is passive. And what this indicates is that we don't reconcile ourselves to God by doing as much as we can to try to please God as maybe some other religions require. Rather, we are to be reconciled, which means to accept what God has already accomplished. So accordingly, our job as ministers of reconciliation is not to need to work to try to bring about reconciliation, but to just announce what has already occurred. So reconciliation is both an accomplished fact, as it's seen in verse 18 and 19, or in verse 18, but it's also a continuing process, as we see it in verse 19. So, so, so though Paul writes in verse 11 that he tries to persuade men, understand that the image he wants you to get is not so much of like a used car salesman trying to get someone to buy something that they don't want, but more of a travel guide who is pointing, pointing the way to people on a spiritual journey, seeking to encounter those whom God is already working in to reconcile them back to himself. You know, as, as we hear in ICF, uh, people share about their outreach experiences. We often hear stories about how some of our students were initially hesitant to try to share the gospel with their friends, share gospel with certain people, but after they took their step of faith, they found the person to be much more open and much more receptive than they had initially imagined. And once again, this is God doing the work of reconciliation, as it says in verse 19, to seek to reconcile the world to himself in Christ. So I hope this morning we understand, as Aaron actually said it, um, in our introduction, that going and growing shouldn't just be the mission of ICF, but for all who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ. And so may we recognize not just that it's not just Paul's, but it's our mission. And may we understand what our motivation should be and the assurance we can have as we go out and try to share the gospel with others. Some takeaways I would just give you very quickly as I need to conclude and ones that we encourage our students to do in ICF is to take time to build intentional relationships with non-Christians, knowing that God has called you to do this and that it must be a priority. To pray that God would use you to reach the lost and believe in faith that he has people out there for you to minister to. I don't have time now, but I would just love to sh- I would have loved to share a story of just how recently I was just praying for God to be able to have an opportunity to witness to someone just unexpectedly in his own timing, in his perfect timing, I would say, he gave me that opportunity. And, and you could see just God working in this person's life. Yeah, you know, believe that God is reconciling people to himself so that you're willing to step out of your comfort zone, 
and, and, you know, and see if God is working through your friend, a co-worker, or family member. As you do, you, I think you will find, like some of our ICFers have, that God can and wants to use you to accomplish this, that God is calling you to the ministry of reconciliation, and that God has people. He is continuing to reconcile to himself. And you can have the joy in being part of this ministry of reconciliation. Let's pray. Finally, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the truth that it holds and the example that Paul sets for us to understand really what should be our priority, what should be our motivation, and to know that we don't go it alone, but you are with us because you continually work to reconcile people back to yourself. Father, let us take these words to heart. May we live it out as you would call us to. May we be obedient to the task, to the primary task that you give us and not get distracted by secondary things. And for all these things in Jesus' name, amen.